Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery. This is Anne. I have Sarah McDougall on today's episode. She is incredible, and I am so grateful that she took the time to come on the podcast today. She is an author, an international speaker, and abuse recovery coach for women in the faith community who are healing from abusive relationships. Her passion is to lead women out of the wilderness and into a wild, abundant life with Jesus. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Anne. It is delightful. I've loved just chatting with you and getting to know you a little bit. And I'm really excited about today. We're going to have fun. As much fun as you can have on this kind of topic. <laughs> woo, woo. Yeah, no kidding. I tell this to my new girls all the time. They say that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and gives you a really dark and twisted sense of humor. So when I say that we're going to have fun talking about the stuff we're going to have fun talking about today, yeah, that's probably my dark and twisted sense of humor coming out. I say to people, what doesn't kill you puts you in a coma. And then after you come out of the coma, then you'll be stronger. But, you know, you've got the coma phase for a while. I'm going to give you Sarah's link so that you can find her online. And then I'll repeat them at the end of this episode. It's Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, McDougal, M-C-D-U-G-A-L, SarahMcDougal.com. You can find her on Facebook at Sarah McDougal Author, on YouTube at Sarah McDougal, and on Instagram at Sarah McDougal. So, follow her on social media. She's amazing. I'm so grateful to have her here. So let's start out. You and I agree that pornography is a form of sexual abuse. Can you tell me about how you came to that conclusion and why you think it's sexual abuse? Oh, you know, let's just start with the easy questions. Why don't we? (laughs) I think that there are multiple reasons why pornography is considered a form of sexual abuse, at least in my perspective. Certainly when I work with taking abuse victims through the power and control wheels, there is both viewing pornography and forcing or requiring someone else to view pornography included under sexual abuse. So in the discussion about pornography being a form of abuse, I see three specific reasons why. And I'm going to kind of start from the outside and work in. First of all, pornography and the porn industry is directly tied to sex trafficking. Now, I know there is a lot of debate, especially among those who are really protective of the porn industry or of their attachment to the porn industry. There's a lot of debate about the fact that Porn stars are paid, porn stars are actors, people say that it's a legitimate choice of career, etc., etc. However, those who insist on this generally are not operating out of a trauma-informed perspective on the type of psychological grooming, the emotional manipulation, the verbal manipulation, or even abuse and insulting that is part of getting someone into the porn industry and then keeping someone in the porn industry. Also, there's a lot of just general naivety among mass consumers of how things really are in the porn star world. There are so many, many porn stars who are dead, who have contracted diseases, who are mentally and emotionally broken down because of the general atmosphere of pornography work. In addition, I've worked for a number of years with my local county who leads my state in pushing back against 
the human slave trade, human trafficking industries with law enforcement. And the liaison in my local county for human trafficking and anti-porn industry, who also goes and does training for others in DC. I mean, he's a big guy who knows his stuff. And what he has said is that the statistics are that if you've watched 30 minutes of pornography, you are guaranteed to have seen someone who was outright there against their will. So the prevalence, even if you think you're watching, quote, free trade, cruelty-free porn, ethical porn, those are oxymorons that do not belong in the same mouthful. Um, But if you've watched 30 minutes of porn, any consecutive 30 minutes, you're guaranteed to have seen someone who was there against their will. That is a whopping proportion of slavery to just general output of product. And so that is the number one reason that I believe porn is inextricably tied with sexual abuse. Because if you are viewing porn, you are benefiting in your own sexual pleasure from someone else who is being abused. And there is no healthy approach to that, period. So outside working in. Two, and that is the effect that porn has on how you treat the person you are with. First, far out is the people in the porn scene. Second, how it has you change in the way you treat people you're with. So if you are married, pornography usage is directly tied to loss of intimacy, reduced empathy, and overall addictive behaviors. And I have some stats that we can go through a little bit later on in the show and their resources. So I'm not just, you know, spouting things off the top of my head and people wonder, well, who does she think she is? And why does she get to say that? So, you know, all about the science and the stats that back things up. Yes. The cool thing about betrayal trauma recovery is that all of my listeners are like, preach it, sister. They're like, we, you can tell us the stats. That's fine. But we know because we've lived it. Right. So you're in a safe space. I love that. I wish I knew every single one of you guys out there who are listening. But still, if you want to repeat any of this stuff, you're going to have some hater in your life who's like, well, where'd you get that? And you're like, well, there was this one woman on this podcast I listened to. And they're like, well, where did she? she get that. I want to give you the background for things. So the effect on the brain and the emotions and the capacity for empathy of the pornography consumer is a net negative. It does not make you more compassionate, more filled with empathy, more capable of connecting to your spouse's or your partner's physical, emotional, mental, psychological needs. The use of pornography takes an act, the sexual act that was designed and created by God to be shared between two people who are committed in love to each other. And I personally believe that that is designed to be shared by two people who are committed in marriage and love to each other. But it takes that sexual act and it turns it into a self-focused, self-gratifying act where there is no need of paying attention to the other person's feelings, pleasure, or there's no give. It is all take. And you are taking from yourself to yourself. And that leads me to the third reason that I believe porn is a form of sexual abuse. And that is because it destroys what is meant to be shared and 
turns it into something that you experience alone. So in all honesty, I believe that porn is not only participating in the sexual abuse, benefiting from the sexual abuse of the person on the screen. It is not only sexually abusing your partner by depriving them of your intimacy and your empathy, but it is also sexually abusing yourself because you are taking what was meant to be a shared experience where you learn to give in love and you are turning it inwards on yourself and isolating yourself also from receiving from another person. And on top of that, there's just really great data out there that porn is I call it like the hashtag consumer groomer for in real life sexual abuse, because the more you watch, the harder you have to see, the harder it has to get in order to get the same high. That's the nature of addiction. We can talk more about that. And you get through harder and harder core stuff because that's the nature of an escalating addiction. So there's there's just no good thing about it. No, it's abusive in and of itself. And then it's grooming people to be abusive, right? So... We had an episode a while back, if you haven't heard it, where my mom and I pontificated about the fact that uh, pornography is committing adultery. A lot of people wrote in and were like, oh, your mom. So I'm going to have her back on to get on her soapbox again about some more fun things. But for you, Sarah, why is viewing pornography the same as committing adultery? That's a great question because, you know, a lot of people are like, well, hey, we, we just watch it together. I mean, like I'm not cheating on my spouse or my partner. We just, it's something we do together. So whether or not you do it together, or you do it alone, as far as watching porn or participating in pornography, consuming pornography, this is where I am definitely going to betray my faith roots because I look at it from a faith perspective and from a perspective of appreciating the institution of marriage. I get that there will be those out there who disagree with me on this, but if you believe that marriage is meant to include sexual faithfulness, if you also believe that Jesus Christ actually meant what he said when he said that if you look at a woman to lust after her, then you have committed adultery in your heart, then viewing pornography is an activity that is solely intended for the purpose of lust with your eyes after another person. And that counts whether you're lusting after another woman, whether you're lusting after another man, whether you're lusting after heterosexual or homosexual pornography, for whatever reason, you are using the information, the sexual voyeurism of those performing sexual acts on a screen under any context. And you're using that for your own sexual pleasure and arousal, which means you are stealing the sexual faithfulness that is designed by God to be given only to your spouse. You're taking that away and you are using it, benefiting from it, pleasuring from it in a way that can be nothing but adultery. Because if we are intended to share sexuality only with the person we are married to, then pornography is a breaking of that covenant because you are gaining sexual pleasure from the viewing of someone else, even if you're not part of the action. Mm -hmm. I think that Christ saying it is enough for me. 
The logic is good. And at the same time, I'm thinking, why would any Christian, right? Any Christian think that it's not. So for those of you who aren't Christian, we can follow that up with, okay, these are the reasons why it is. It clearly is. But at the same time, it's like, Christ just says it just like that. If you look at anyone to lust after them, you're committing adultery. I keep saying this, but it's not rocket science, people. Here's the thing. So there's caveats that people get themselves out with. I'm not married right now, so I'm not committing adultery. Well, then fine. That's fornication. But it's no different. And so if you're not married right now, then you're cheating on your future spouse. You're developing a mindset. Or it harms you. The commandments are there to protect us and to help us and to benefit us. So it's going to harm you. Now, my favorite translation of the Bible is the New Living Translation. Different people have their different favorite ones. But 1 Corinthians 6.18 is a really good one with this. And it says, run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. Why? It's not talking about STDs. It says, for sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. So even if you really don't care about your future unnamed spouse, even if you really don't care about your present spouse, if you care about your own body, your own mentality, your own ability to think clearly, to have empathy, to connect with other people, to not be isolated in addiction, flee sexual sin. And we see science now following up with so many statistics and studies that support that. But God said it centuries and centuries ago. Yeah. Let's talk about this addiction thing, because I'm kind of getting to the point where I don't want to call it addiction anymore. Is it addictive? Yes, I think it is. But I'm kind of getting to the point where I just want to call it abuse. They habitually abuse porn. They're habitually lying and manipulating. Those are abusive. They're engaging in abusive behaviors chronically. And that's kind of where I'm going. Now, I do think it is addictive, but it just feels more true to me to call it abuse. Where are you on this progression? How are you feeling about the word addiction these days? I think that addiction is a sin of choice, a disease of choice. There are those who, I keep introducing my ideas with that caveat, there are those who won't agree with me. That's getting probably old if you're listening right now. Here's my blanket caveat. There are those who will disagree with everything I say for the rest of the show. See, I'm so used to speaking to groups of people who shouldn't actually disagree, like, you know, crowds of pastors and church leaders and spiritual executives or administrators or whatever. And with them, I have to use that caveat all the time. I know. Well, this is why you're probably doing better in that realm than I am, because I show up at these groups and I don't give that caveat and I stare them down and I say, this is wrong. If you disagree with me, you're full of crap, right? I think that's why people are like, oh, jeez, you know, because I never, I don't give any caveats. Is it an addiction? I agree with you that pornography is highly addictive. If you go to secular therapy, you're going to hear like, well, addiction is a disease. Well, that's fine. Sure. It creates diseased responses in the body and the brain. I agree. Is it a disease you have no control over? No. There's actually a book out called Addiction. I believe that the title is Addiction is a Disease of Choice. Feel free to look it up. It's got a lot of interesting stuff in it. But the whole idea that 
I'm just like a cancer patient. I have no control over this because I have this addiction is absolutely false, patently false, particularly from the perspective of the gospel, because we're talking about on one hand, especially among Christians who struggle with it what we would call pornography addiction or sexual addiction. We're talking about how we go to church and, and Jesus can deliver you from anything. Well, you know, unless you watch porn in that case, you're like helplessly in bondage to it for the rest of your life and you're going to struggle for the, with this for life. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I believe that we choose and that we are in charge of our thoughts and our choices. Can negative choices become like chains of bondage around us? Absolutely. Can the strength of Christ for positive choices repeated over and over again, change and break those bonds? Yes. So no one in my perception is narcissistic beyond repair and no one is addicted to porn beyond redemption. Here's the sad reality. Those who are highly narcissistic and those who are given over to pornography and sexual addiction are very unlikely to make the choices to change, but they are still capable of choosing. So we say, oh, well, they're just very, very strong-willed. No, they're not. They're weak-willed because they cannot conquer themselves. Uh-huh. I say it's possible. It's not probable. In Christian circles, when the man claims to have been saved by Jesus, right? So, so he's over it, right? He said a prayer and Christ changed him and he's, he's done with it, which is what my ex said. And then he lied for seven years after that. I think like you have to actually, in order to have faith and utilize Christ's atonement to be able to change, you have to make steps toward that. You can't just say that you were changed and actually be changed. That's not how it works. Um, because in order to actually benefit from the spirit, you have to be obedient to the commandments. I actually do a whole program on how to take charge of your thoughts and learn to change the way you think in order to change how you feel. And the New Testament talks about taking every thought captive and let the mind of Christ be in you. And I don't think that those are just random phrases being strung together in scripture. I think that they are actually things that we are supposed to be able to do. Those are practical tools and being able to, to take charge of our thoughts and to change how we think is effective in addictive habits, addictive choices, and that kind of thing as well. We are not helpless in the face of addiction. So if you have a spouse who's telling you that if you leave them because they're addicted to porn and they refuse to change, that you're as bad as a spouse who um, is abandoning their husband because he got cancer, you are dealing with an unrepentant person who is choosing sin over redemption. That's actually something I was told at one point in my life when I was trying to hang on to some sense of accountability. And so I was told that if I insisted on accountability, I was as bad as someone who abandoned a cancer patient, a spouse because they got cancer. Because the other person in this scenario had completely swallowed hook, line, and sinker, pop psychology's idea that you are captive to this disease. Well, you know what? If Jesus comes to save 
then we are not captive to any form of thinking beyond redemption. Jesus is here and with us because he wants to bring us freedom from that. And and I really, truly believe that. Now, is porn more addictive than cocaine? Yes. Is it, out of all the forms of online entertainment, like gambling and, and gaming and surfing and everything, porn has the strongest tendency to be addictive. Seeking adult entertainment is the most common reason for compulsive internet use. And if you want stats for that, that's from fightthenewdrug.com. Does porn create a physiological response in the brain, that dopamine hit that's just like a foreign chemical or an external substance? Yes. And here's where porn is more powerful than external substances because it's all in your head. You don't actually need to go get an external substance to get that hit. You just have to go there in your mind. And so does that mean that it can be harder to break porn than it can be to like, I don't know, quit cigarettes or alcohol? Yes. But it also means that all the power is in your mind. And if you're allowing God to transform the way you think and to fill you up with good, holy thoughts and perspectives, that redemption from porn is not impossible. But, you know, I say that because I do believe there's hope for those who are addicted to porn. On the other hand, is it likely? No. So going back to all of our women who are listening, who are spouses of porn addicts, is it really probable that your husband is going to realize this and decide that he's going to be the one in 10 abusive spouses who's going to really start trying to do the hard work of change, that 10% who just try. That doesn't mean that a full 10% actually succeed in changing. That's just the 10% who are willing to try. That's not very likely. No. And here at BTR, we want to hold a space for that, right? For them being able to change. But instead of the classic like serve, forgive, love that we get at church while we're quote unquote waiting for change and seeing if they're capable of change, it's safety is the most important thing. So if you are inclined to say, I believe that my husband can do this. I believe in the power of Christ, or I believe that he can make healthy choices, whatever, wherever you're at on that. And that's great. Like, go for it. That's what I did. And I waited in a safe place with no contact and observed from a distance his behavior. And it just kept getting worse. Now, I hope that that doesn't happen for you. For some women, they might see, oh, wow, he's making positive changes and they can see that. But the actions are what are the most important thing. I was talking with Coach Joy the other day about one of our church leaders says that studying the gospel changes behavior quicker than studying behavior changes behavior. And I was thinking about that in context of like therapy or other places where an addict might go and talk about all the quote unquote reasons why, right? Like I do it because I was abused as a kid or because my mom didn't appreciate me or because my church leader shamed me or whatever. And if instead of talking about behavior, if we focus on the principles of health, honesty, accountability, fidelity, and just do that. Even if your thought process isn't quite there yet, maybe you're not thinking, and I agree, like Christ can change our thoughts too. But I'm just thinking like, that will 
change your behavior quicker than talking about why you do the bad thing that you do, right? Focusing on and giving yourself a shovel to dig a trench and sit in that trench and say, well, the reason I do all these bad things, I have good reasons. Because the other thing I tell people is that I know people who've been abused. They're not abusive. I know people who have had bad moms. They don't watch porn, right? So all of these reasons why you're telling me that you choose unhealthy things and you choose to be abusive to other people are not reasons at all. Have you read Lundy Bancroft? Yeah. He's like our Bible around here. Yes. Lundy's amazing. So he has this one section in uh, the book, Why Does He Do That? Inside the Minds of Angry and Controlling Men, where he talks about exactly that. And so, you know, these abusive guys will start talking about, oh, well, you know, I treat her like this because my mom was so bad with me or whatever. And he says his classic response is, well, so you remember how it felt when your parent or grandparent or whoever treated you that way and how, how breaking down that was. Oh yeah, it was awful. It was awful. That's why I'm so mean. So wait a second. You remember how it felt out of everyone. You should know exactly how she feels when you abuse her because you remember how that felt. And that should mean you should do everything possible to never, ever treat someone that way. Oh, and then all of a sudden they don't use that excuse anymore. Well, that, or they say, well, this is different because she's so bad or she deserves it or, you know, whatever. She's not anything like me. She's a demon, right? Yeah, right. So, I mean, but they pivot at that point. It's never that exact excuse ever again because they just realized that they got busted and that doesn't work for them anymore. You know, I think that as far as two things that come to mind, when we're talking about holding out hope for change, I will say that in the work that I do and and have done over the last several years and the observation, I don't hold out a lot of hope for change most of the time. But I do think that it is important to remember that no person is beyond the redemption of Jesus Christ. No person, unless they choose to be, is beyond the potential of salvation. So when we talk about your mind and your thoughts, I'm reminded of Philippians 4.8, and that is this whole idea that instead of just like trying to get rid of all the bad stuff, which is exactly what you were saying, I'm just kind of rephrasing it from a different perspective, is to fill up your mind with what is good. And Philippians 4.8 is fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. So the more that you get down in the weeds dwelling on all the negative stuff, even if you're focused on trying to get rid of the negative stuff, that focus is still keeping you focused on the negative stuff. And the more you fill up and crowd out all the negative stuff with good, holy, honorable things, the more capacity you have for that positive change. But here's some scary, scary statistics. There's a guy named Mike Tucker who does a program called Mad About Marriage, and he's a national, maybe international speaker on marriage. And he says, if you want to know that an abusive person has changed, What they need to go through is a minimum of three times per week in therapy for three to five years without relapse before you can be sure that change has actually stuck. So waiting from a safe distance for years and they need to be confirmed, participating humbly and surrendered to the process without arrogance or excuses or blame shifting multiple times a week for years. So if you have a spouse who's willing to actually do that, 
that's an extraordinary experience. Yeah. And whether or not they do or don't, the cool thing is, and we've done so many podcasts about this, you can observe from that safe distance to know if you're safe. That's the thing that everyone needs to know and that everyone needs to understand about the situation so that we can get women to safety as soon as possible. So they don't have to be actively abused anymore ever again. Now, does divorce solve that? No, right? You still are abused through their lies and manipulation and other things, but at least the amount of contact, you can reduce it drastically. And that's the goal. Sarah will be back again next week to talk about how the term co-addict or codependency is being weaponized against victims and more about abuse. So please stay tuned. We'll have her back next week. Thank you so much for coming on today, Sarah. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Summer is over. I don't know if you were like this, but I just held on by the seat of my pants. Summer is so hard for me. I'm very organized in terms of stuff around my house, but I am not naturally organized when it comes to time management. And so the summer is just always a disaster. I always either over plan or under plan and nothing ever goes quite right. I'm so glad that school has started again. It gives me a natural organization to my day. And when fall starts, a lot of women are looking forward to working on self-care and progressing towards peace. I am specifically working on self-care. I created the Daily Wellness Journal, which is a self-care log for women looking to improve their self-care. And I made it for myself. (laughs) So it's sort of the way I do things. It's more of a checklist style. There's also a boundary log on our website and books or logs that might be helpful to you. Find those at btr.org backslash books. If anyone out there is interested in coming on the podcast to talk about self-care that works for them, tips that they might have, or things that are not working for them, just so we can have a discussion about it, I would love to have you on. Email my assistant, Kari, K-A-R-I, at btr.org, and you can schedule an interview with me. I'd love to talk to you about self-care and what is working and what isn't working and what your goals are. We have added a lot of sessions to Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group. So if you are working towards safety and peace, go to btr.org. Look at the Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group schedule. It's under daily group sessions. Check out if that will work for you. I think we have upwards of like 18 sessions per week. It increases frequently, so I'm not sure if that's exactly accurate. So check out the website and see what the session schedule looks like right now. Also, if you are looking for a men's program that takes the BTR approach, that pornography use is abusive and approaches it from an abuse perspective, check out our partner Center for Peace. That is C-E-N-F-P dot org. You might not know, but this podcast is actually brought to you by your donations. So those of you who donate monthly to the podcast, a huge shout out and a huge thank you to you. In order to continue to provide this high quality resource for free for women throughout the world, we need your monthly recurring donation. So please go to btr.org, scroll down to the bottom, click on make a donation and set your monthly recurring donation today. Similarly, if this podcast is helpful to you, please tell friends about it or post about it on Facebook. I know it's iffy, obviously, because you don't want people to know maybe this is happening to you, but the... I know a friend who benefited from this greatly and more women need to know about it method works really well 
We have found that when women find us, it's such a big help to them that we just need your help getting the word out. So thank you, those of you who share our podcasts on social media or tell other women who have experienced this about this podcast. And until next week, stay safe out there.